welcome to Essex Church, where our gathered community of Kensington Unitarians meets each Sunday for worship, as well as for other activities during the week. Welcome to those of you who are new to this place, or to Unitarian worship, perhaps. Welcome to those of you who are here most weeks, and welcome to our regular visitors. Just as we have all taken our different paths to arrive here today, so we as Unitarians are free to shape our path of faith. We're not identified by fixed beliefs because for many of us, belief changes and develops in response to life. But I think what does identify us as a community is a responsible search for meaning and purpose, an emphasis on healthy values to guide us in life, a commitment to making ours a more just world. So I invite you now to take a breath, to tell yourself that you are here now, you have arrived. Here we can be focused and present, present to ourselves. Relax. Know yourself to be truly welcome, just as you are. And may this hour that we spend together help us all in our different ways, as we perhaps sense our part in something greater than ourselves. For whatever our faith, whatever our beliefs, we are part of the great stream of life itself, flowing, moving ever onwards together. Martin Luther King once said, The hope of the world is still in dedicated minorities, the trailblazers in human, academic, scientific and religious freedom have always been in the minority. As we gather to worship today, may it be as such a minority, dedicated to the cause of freedom for all the people of the world. I'm clearing the decks for our assistant. You know, I don't think I've got the strength today to work this. I'm already getting it tangled up again. There we go. Let's see. This is a famous story. But because we've got a camel, I've changed it from an elephant to a camel. (laughs) And because this is a camel that likes performing and needs to be... taken out for a walk periodically. The story is one that some of you will know very, very well. And all I would say in that case is, as you hear this yet again, think about camels. And think about the deeper philosophical meaning in this story, which comes from India, I do believe, where you can get both elephants and camels, I've heard and is sometimes attributed to the Buddhist tradition. And it's the story about six blind people who I'm going to change to people who've decided to blindfold themselves for the day, who'd often heard about camels, but but being unable to see, had never actually seen one. And so curious about this creature, camel, they decided to visit the palace grounds where they knew that the Raja kept many such creatures. And a friend led them to that palace, led them to a camel that was standing in the courtyard. And those people who could not see touched the camel with their hands, hoping to mentally envision what the animal looked like based on what it felt like. 
and the first person touched the side of a camel. This may need to be passed around. a camel it's pretty rough and hairy and that first person said oh a camel feels like a great rug for my hallway and the second one touched the nose of a camel which actually is quite cool and rounded ah he said a camel is like a freshly picked grapefruit the third touched the teeth not the best feature of a camel Mm, how hard and sharp a camel must be like a spear and so it went on someone touched the leg ah a camel must be like a tree the fifth touched those lovely soft ears ah how fluffy a camel must be like a ball of wool and the fifth touched the tail of the camel and I'm not sure if my camel has a tail I shall have to check but they do in real life how thin he said a camel must be like a rope And after each of those people, unable to see the camel, had formed their opinion through their touch, they spent the rest of the day arguing about it. And so tedious did it become that eventually the Raja came out and saw those six quarrelling people and said, Stop. The camel is a big animal. Each of you touched only one part. Each of you is therefore partly right and all of you are wrong. In order to understand a camel, you must put all the parts together. And they spent the rest of the day putting their parts together, and by the end of it, they had a greater sense of what a camel is. Now you can see, can't you, how how useful this is in religious education lessons or philosophy classes. And actually, it has many potential meetings, but... I like its meaning in, in a religious, in a theological way, to say, how can we ever understand the nature of the divine? How can we understand religion? We can only share each other's perception and hopefully gain a greater sense of the whole. And that is the story of the people who decided not to be able to see and the camel. I'd, met, I'd better not go on too much about um, the possibility of Scottish independence. I'm sure there will be opinions here on this matter. But, but as you perhaps know, there, there is already a Scottish Parliament um, up in Edinburgh. And to their credit, they invite um, representatives of different faiths to lead prayers uh, before their meetings. And so it is that a Unitarian got to lead prayers in the Scottish Parliament um, earlier this year. My colleague, the Reverend Maud Robinson. And just imagine if I was allowed to go to the Houses of Parliament and do the same thing. I, I live in hope. So we're going to hear now the Reverend Maud Robinson's words uh, in time for reflection. Yes, this is the address by the Reverend Maud Robinson at the time for reflection in the Scottish Parliament delivered on the 19th of March 2013. 
In years gone by, confessing a Unitarian faith could lead one to a sticky end. In 1697, Thomas Aitkinhead, a young Edinburgh medical student, rejected the doctrine of the Trinity and for this offence was hanged. It wasn't until 1813 that the Unitarian Relief Act granted toleration for Unitarian worship. This year marks the 200th anniversary of that act of toleration. With our history of being denied tolerance, there has been a strong strand of Unitarian faith and practice which has always championed tolerance of difference. And so I commend to you some thoughts about tolerance. Words evoke and change, but they often continue to carry nuances from the past. This is why it's important to think deeply about the particular words we use. The root of the word tolerance carries, as one meaning, to experience or undergo as pain or hardship. Are these really the terms in which we would wish to view our relationships with those who are different from us? Maybe it's time to look beyond the word tolerance. What word could we think of to take its place? There's compassion, the central virtue of all the world's faiths. A worthy ideal to aspire to, but does it cover the same ground as tolerance? Is it so wide that the initial focus on relations with those who are different from us is lost? If we try to approach those of different faiths with compassion, we may treat them with kindness as fellow human beings, but does it challenge us to truly, to truly engage with them in relation to their differing beliefs and worldview? What about acceptance? It certainly doesn't carry the grudging connotations of tolerance, but it can imply an uncritical wholesale embrace of everything said or done in the name of another culture or faith tradition. As thinking people, we cannot accept actions which emanate from a different worldview if they are harmful to others. This can be a difficult line to walk, but blind acceptance is not the answer. Finally, I suggest respect. Respect means to value others. Tolerance avoids engagement. Respect welcomes it. This vision of moving beyond tolerance towards respect and active engagement with difference seems a better aspiration. Respect speaks more of thoughtful consideration. It's more generous than the implications of doing something grudgingly, which can be understood by tolerance, but it is more thoughtful and constructively critical than careless acceptance. If each one of us could strive to treat those who are different with us with respect, I think we might indeed find ourselves living in a better world. The words of the Reverend Maud Robinson. Okay, can you concentrate in this warm weather? No. <laughs> I find myself staring at a computer screen or a page of a book and taking not a word in. So for anyone who thinks they may be in danger of drifting off in, during this address, to which you are completely entitled to do, here are the key pieces of information in easily digestible form. Okay. 1813. Okay. If, if nothing else, just go away with 1813 in your mind. Up until 1813, it was illegal in Britain to deny the Trinity or to assert that there are more gods than one, to deny that the Christian religion was true or that the Christian scriptures were not of divine authority. 
What year did that happen in that Act of Parliament? 1813. If before 1813 you did assert any of those matters in writing, printing, teaching or advised speaking, then you were barred from holding any public office in the church, in local or national government or in the military. And if you were convicted a second time of such a crime, you could be imprisoned for up to three years. You were barred from many legal rights, including the guardianship of children, bringing a case to court, or being an executor of someone's estate. Then, in that magical year, 1813, in the month of July, an act was passed with the title... OK, you can drift off now... An act to relieve persons who impugn the doctrine of the Holy Trinity from certain penalties. That wordy title has been simplified over the years to the Trinity Act or the Unitarian Relief Act. And at last to have Unitarian views and to express them publicly was legally allowed. 1813. It's not all that long ago, is it? 200 years Interesting to note as well that the Roman Catholics had to wait until 1829 for their religious beliefs to be accepted in the Roman Catholic Relief Act. But for Unitarians, legal acceptance arrived in 1813, and it's this 200th anniversary that Unitarian congregations around the country are celebrating at the moment. And thanks have got to be given for our freedom to one William Smith MP, who I did not know of until I researched this service. He was the leading dissenting member of Parliament of his day. He worked tirelessly to achieve this and for many other causes, including the abolition of slavery. William Smith is better known now as Florence Nightingale's grandfather, but in his time he was highly regarded as a skilled and determined campaigner. Now, I know it is not easy for us to imagine life in the late 18th century or to understand the pressures and the concerns of their day. We know that dissent from the fixed creeds and beliefs of the Church of England, disagreeing with them, that had actually been legal since Charles II's reign, passed by the Act of Toleration in 1689. So there were lots of dissenting congregations and ministers And quietly, quietly, some of those held Unitarian views. Much was discussed in private. One of my favourite examples is from Evesham, where a group of dissenting ministers held regular meetings and disguised one of their meetings as an asparagus lunch (laughs) held to celebrate the asparagus, asparagus harvest of the Evesham area. It's held in May of each year from 1782 to the present day the asparagus lunch of Evesham. And here, of course, at Essex Church, we're very proud to remind people that ours was the very first openly Unitarian congregation, opened in 1770... No, no, no. He slipped at the first hurdle. The first congregation, 1774, by one Theophilus Lindsay, who had left ministry within the Church of England because he could no longer support Anglican theology with integrity. Many people quietly got on with their jobs and quietly held their own Unitarian views, but dear old Theophilus, he was the one who decided, I can't do this, I must set off on my own path. And we've all been on that path since. 200 people attended his first service at Essex Street, 
And in the congregation, there were apparently a number of government spies and assorted future prime ministers of our country. So although it was illegal to express those Unitarian views, the powers that be generally chose not to seek prosecution, and dissenters continued to be at the forefront of social change in this country. Oh, but these were tumultuous times, you know. Religion and politics were closely intertwined, both here in Britain and, of course, abroad. Joseph Priestley, for example, whose name you might know, better known now as a scientist, he was a Unitarian minister too, enthusiastic in his support for revolutionary causes, both um, in Britain and abroad, especially, of course, in America and France. In 1791, a patriotic mob in Birmingham burnt down Priestley's church, the new meeting house, and his home, and the homes of other prominent Unitarians. Priestley and his family, a few years later, decided they'd had enough and emigrated to America. Back here in England, once that Trinity Act was passed in 1813, there was a rapid growth of congregations identifying themselves as Unitarian. From, say, I don't know, about 20 congregations in, say, 1810 to over 200 in England alone by 1825. So a rapid change occurred in those few years. And the rest, as they say, is history. Except, of course, history does have that tendency to repeat itself. You know, in truth, there is still discrimination against Unitarianism to this day here in Britain. In 1933, the Dean of Liverpool Cathedral invited a well-known local Unitarian minister to preach there. On hearing of this, some Anglicans complained, and at a convocation in York, it was decreed that no Unitarian could ever again be allowed to preach in an Anglican church. And believe me, that is true to this day. And Unitarians are also not accepted as members of churches together in Britain and Ireland. Well, to me, these are tiny slights. They're annoying. I know to some people they are upsetting. But perhaps such ongoing discrimination might allow us to relate, at least to some extent, with people all around our world who are facing discrimination each and every day because of their chosen faith. Each year, the State Department of the United States issues a review of religious freedom around the world. It's worth, if you're interested in these things, having a look online at at that report. Um, As you might imagine, it paints quite a grim picture of a world filled with intolerance in one form or another. In various countries, as we know well, it is illegal to hold religious beliefs contrary to the state's supported religion. In many more countries... Discrimination is fuelled by views expressed openly by government leaders. Last year's report noted an increase in anti-Semitism in countries such as Hungary, Greece, Argentina and France, as well as the more obvious Middle Eastern countries such as Iran and Egypt. And the following countries were cited for their particularly harsh treatment of people for their religious beliefs. China, Eritrea, Iran... Burma, North Korea, Saudi Arabia, Sudan and Uzbekistan. What can we do about all of this? Not a lot, in truth. We might sign online petitions or join Amnesty International campaigns for such actions do make a difference, I think, in how individuals may be treated by repressive regimes. 
To know that people of the world are informed and concerned about ill treatment may sometimes help someone. And we might campaign for a truly universal acceptance of the United Nations Declaration of Human Rights throughout countries of the world. You probably know these words. It declares that everyone has the right to freedom of thought, conscience and religion. This right includes freedom to change one's religion or belief and freedom either alone or in community with others, in public or in private, to manifest one's religion or belief in teaching, practice, worship and observance. The world has a long way to go before that is recognised. And what about us? Perhaps then the key tasks for us are to ensure that our own house is in good enough order, to examine our own prejudices and attempt to rebalance the prejudices of our own society. We can perhaps feel pride in our pluralist society where all people are free to express express their own religious beliefs. Or we might despair at times that, for example, Channel 4's recent uh, decision to broadcast the early morning call to prayer during the Islamic festival of Ramadan has caused such a furore, at least in the media. Or what about the much less publicised, painful truth that most Muslim and Jewish places of worship here in our lovely United Kingdom now feel a need to have a guard on their doors in case of attack. Imagine if that was us, here now, if we Unitarians had people on guard to protect us from attack because of our faith which is, of course, what the dissenters of hundreds of years ago had to do. Now, well, perhaps now we can be a helpful voice in the debate of how we are to live in a diverse community, how we can encourage ourselves and others to be curious about those who are different from us rather than afraid, how we can assert common human bonds across the divides, forged from respect and goodwill. I think that would be a genuinely helpful legacy from the struggles of our forebears to win our own religious freedom, a sign perhaps of our gratitude and indeed our respect. Amen. If we have any hope of transforming the world and changing ourselves, we must be bold enough to step into our discomfort, brave enough to be clumsy there, loving enough to forgive ourselves and others. May we, as a people of faith, be granted the strength to be so bold, so brave and so loving. Amen. Go well and blessed be.